Genesis 25, please, Genesis 25. We've been journeying with Abraham in Genesis since last August, late August, right around six months. Uh, But now Abraham is going to die. Yeah, it's a good response. 100 years have passed since God first spoke to Abraham. He was 75 years old when God called him to go from his country and his kindred and his father's house to the land that God would show him. And now at his death, he will be 175. Very few of you are as old as Abraham was when he first got started on his journey with God. I think it's safe to say that none of us will live as long as Abraham lived. Uh, But we do all share something in common with Abraham. Like Abraham, we will all die. You will die someday, and so will I. Apart from Christ's intervention into history, which we long for and we pray for, we wait for, and until that intervention comes, and unless that intervention comes, death is inevitable. So whether my life is long by current standards, uh, or whether my life is short, my life will come to an end. I will die someday, and so will you. Although our society is desperate to avoid death and ignore it and hide from it, uh, the Bible is not shy about the reality of death. David wrote this in Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. David was not the first to write about this. Moses wrote about it in Psalm 90. We sang about that this morning. He wrote that our days are swept away. They're like a dream or like grass that flourishes in the morning and fades in the evening. He says, for all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone and we fly away. Of course, James would echo the same wisdom thousands of years later. James 4, 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Like Abraham, you will die. An encouraging start to our time together. I know. Man, Peter's away for a couple weeks, comes back. You're going to die. Well, thankfully, the same authors that speak so bluntly about our coming deaths tell us how to live in light of our coming deaths. David in Psalm 39, verses 7 and 8 says this, right after he talks about that few hand breaths, he says, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. My hope is in you. Life's short. I'm going to die. My hope is in you. On Moses in Psalm 90, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. 
Reminds me of Ecclesiastes. And then James, right? You're but a vapor, a mist, appears for a little while. He calls us to humbly submit ourselves and all of our plans to the sovereign will of our Lord. Now, I will do this with my life. Your life is a breath. Oh, Lord, your will be done. I think that by looking at the death of Abraham, we can see a godly path toward our own deaths. The Bible doesn't allow us to just ignore it, pretend that it's not there. Instead, we stare at the face of it. It's the end of our path. But what about the path? Can we learn from Abraham in this? I think we can. We can see a godly path toward our own deaths by considering Abraham's path toward his death. So as we consider Genesis 25 together, we'll see that in his death, Abraham's eyes remained fixed on God's promises. In his death, Abraham's eyes remained fixed on God's promises. Genesis 25, we'll read first, we'll read verses 1 through 6. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimram, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. Sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephor, Hanak, Abida, and Eldaah. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts, and while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. Before his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. Before his death, in the decades leading up to it, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. In chapter 5, we meet Abraham's third wife, second concubine, named Keturah. There is some question as to whether this last marriage took place after Sarah's death, as it kind of appears in the narrative, uh, or if it took place sometime while she was still alive. That's not a question of the accuracy of Scripture. It's just understanding how Moses was writing. Uh, because just because it's recorded here doesn't give us a clear answer, uh, as Moses is not really concerned with a strict chronology of everything in Abraham's life in this chapter. For instance, even if you just do the math, we read about his death in verse 8, but he actually would have been alive throughout the first part of chapter 25 to see the births of uh, Esau and Jacob. You just line up the numbers, and he's alive until they're like 15. He's just not mentioned in the chapter because in the scheme of Genesis, Abraham stops mattering after chapter 25. Uh, it's the story of Isaac and God's work in Isaac and in his children, and then that moves on, right? So it, it's just, this is the end of Abraham's story, uh, even though it's like, well, where did all these events line up? It just doesn't matter as much to Moses in these type of things. He isn't mentioned, like I said, because they're moving on. Here is the end, the conclusion of the story uh, or the generations of Abraham. Whenever Abraham married Keturah, whenever the six sons were born to him by her, the most important thing is that like happened with Hagar's son Ishmael, none of these sons were allowed to threaten Isaac's status as the son of Abraham. Your son, your Beloveds, your only son, Isaac, that's how God had addressed him. And no other child born to any other woman was allowed to threaten Isaac's sole status 
as inheritor. Uh, Isaac was the son of Abraham. Isaac was the son of God's promise. Isaac was the sole inheritor of Abraham's estate and the sole inheritor of God's blessing. Through Isaac, your offspring will be named. So like Ishmael, if you remember in chapter 21, Abraham gave gifts to each of these sons and then sent them away. He sent them eastward to the east country. Maybe east country is actually supposed to be the name of a place. It's hard to tell. God's words to Abraham, if you recall, when he spoke about Ishmael, because that bothered Abraham. Do you remember? Sarah's like, get her and this kid out of here. And Abraham's troubled by that. And God says, well, don't be troubled. Do what she says, right? This is the blessing. Isaac is the one. Nothing can stand in the way of that. These were God's words to Abraham. Maybe it could apply to these sons as well. Be not displeased because of the boy, because of your slave woman. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Like there will be blessings for Ishmael. Perhaps we could say there will be blessings for these other sons, but not the blessing. So send them away. Perhaps the same thing can be applied to these other sons. What we know for sure is that they had to leave because God's promise was to and for Isaac only. No competitors were allowed. No co-inheritors could be tolerated. And Abraham knows this. For God had clearly spoken this to him and he had spoken to him repeatedly. Repeatedly and clearly, it is through Isaac and Isaac alone. He has already acted on this exclusive promise once when he sent Ishmael away, and then he does the same thing here again with these other six sons that he has. Abraham's eyes in the decades leading up to his death were focused on God's promise of this one son. Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son, Isaac, and Isaac alone would inherit the land that God promised to Abraham. Isaac and Isaac alone would be both blessed and a blessing to the nations. Isaac and Isaac alone would be the next father or patriarch to God's chosen people. And God's choice of Isaac had been an exclusive, distinguishing choice based solely on God's purposes and plans. You remember Abraham even said, God, why don't you just do these promises through Ishmael? And God says, no, it is Isaac. And we'll read about similar things that happened with Jacob and Esau in the next chapter. And with that plan having been clearly revealed, Abraham would have been faithless and disobedient to do anything apart from focusing his attention and his estate solely on Isaac. Because God's will had been clearly spoken about this, like Abraham could not do otherwise than, okay, send them off. And we could ask, well, what did you marry her for? <laughs> Why more kids? We could ask those questions, but Genesis just, can I just, it doesn't care. It doesn't ask. It doesn't answer. It's not concerned. This just happened and it moves on. So it's all we can do. Abraham acted to guard the promised blessing for Isaac. He didn't put in his will, give him some gifts and send them away after I die. It says, it's like he took care of it so that Isaac wouldn't have a mess to deal with. This is like by the time of his own death that it would just be Isaac there. So Abraham acted to guard the promised blessing for Isaac. 
And he acted to pass that blessing on to Isaac as the next generation in God's plan. Before his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. Verses 7 through 10. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Before his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. After his death, or at his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised home. Before his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. At his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised home. But we don't see that as clearly in Genesis 25. You know where we see that? We see that in Hebrews 11. You can bookmark Genesis 25, but I'd ask you to turn over, if you can flip there quickly, to Hebrews chapter 11. As you're turning there, there's one passing note before we really lean in on this point about the promised home. Did you hear how Moses described Abraham's death in verse 8? He was gathered to his people. It's a phrase that starts here and occurs about Ishmael and about Isaac and about Jacob and about Joseph and about, I think, David and Solomon. A few different people are spoken of as when they died, they were gathered to their people. And some would say, oh, this is just a way of describing his burial. They put his body with the other body, <laughs> the bodies of his dead relatives. It's like, well, that didn't really happen with Abraham. There was, there was Sarah. That's not, he wasn't gathered to his fathers. His fathers weren't in the tomb. Right? So instead, it can't be just like, oh, he was buried. This text says he was gathered to his people and then he was buried. So something more is being communicated. And one author said this way, instead, this expression refers to a sequel to death. It reflects belief in the continued existence of the dead in the intermediate state. Between life and resurrected life, there's something in between. I mean, critics of the Bible will be like, no, no, no. They wouldn't have believed that yet. That was later. Well, it's here in the text in black and white that there was like, oh, he's being gathered to his people. There is a continued existence after death, even as he awaits for the resurrection. And a continued existence after death really is the unanimous testimony of the Bible starting as early as Genesis. There's no just disintegration. There's no annihilation. There's no just soul sleep into nothingness. There is conscious existence after death as we await for the fulfillment of God's promises. Abraham had enjoyed the knowledge of the promise of this land as his inheritance for 100 years. None of you have known about anything for 100 years. Neither have I. Yet at his death, all his family owned was a small cemetery plot. That's really not much of an inheritance. And it, what, is it an inheritance if you have to buy it? He wasn't given this land. Keith walked through this. He bought it full price. He insisted on it, actually. So this isn't an inheritance. Even the, the cave in the field is not an inheritance that God had given him because he had to buy it. So he had no inheritance, no land at the point of his death that he had just been given by God. Was this somehow disappointing to him? 
At the point of his death, God even told him, like, yeah, your offspring will get this. This land I will give to you. Well, actually, I will give to them. And actually, it's going to be 400 years down the road. Was Abraham discontent or content? It's an important question. What did Abraham think about his promised inheritance? And thankfully, the Holy Spirit, through the author of the book of Hebrews, answers those questions for us. So if you're in Hebrews 11, first, look at verses 9 and 10. By faith, Abraham went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, not his home, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city. That's the opposite of a tent. Looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Abraham lived those 100 years in temporary dwellings, believing that God himself would prepare an eternally permanent home for him. Like you, you buy property and you want to build like the dream house. It takes time. So you just kind of like live in the little camper to the side while you wait for the house to be built. Something like that. We can put up with this temporary dwelling because of the, the home. Well, Abraham spent his entire earthly life in the tent, in the camper. And he didn't even see the foundation laid. But he believed that God would build that home for him. And it was not just a matter of faith that God would provide the land for his offspring. That's not what Hebrews says. That he lived in tents knowing that eventually someone else would live in a city here. He's like, no, no, no. That city, that's for me. That's what Hebrews is saying. This speaks of Abraham's faith that God would provide a home for him. And how long did this faith endure? All the way to his death. At his death, up to that point, I believe Abraham died content knowing that God was building a city for him to dwell in. A city that he never lived in on this earth because it wasn't part of this earth. He was looking forward to something permanent, something eternal. Isaac and Jacob end up doing the same thing. That's Hebrews 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promise, promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar with eyes of faith, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, I'm a stranger, I'm an exile, people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. King Abimelech belonged in Gerar. It was his home. It was his kingdom. It was his city. Ephron the Hittite belonged in Hebron. But Abraham belonged nowhere. Once he left his people in Haran to obey God's call, he had no roots and he had no country. So he called himself a, a sojourner. He called himself that. Or a traveler, a wanderer. He called himself a foreigner, a stranger, an outsider, one who doesn't belong. He's not from around these parts. I resonate with Abraham a little bit. Peter, where are you from? Whew. Well, I was born in Connecticut, uh, then we transferred to Illinois, and then we transferred to New Jersey, 
And then we transferred to West Virginia uh, before my fifth birthday. I've got my math right. Uh, and how many of you are from here? Right? How many of you are not from here? How many of you who are not from here know keenly that you are not from here? Okay? West Virginia is a wonderfully welcoming place to those who aren't from here. But you live forever with the knowledge you're not from here. Okay? Like most people in West Virginia, they, they, they've got a county. That's how you can generally tell. Other than Gerald, who's from Up Hurricane Creek. Uh, Gerald and Jane Ellen. But everybody else is like, oh yeah, we're from, we, we, our people. We are from Mason County. So, well, when did you leave Mason County? Oh, my grandpa left Mason County 175 years ago, but we are from there. I've lived, I lived in West Virginia from the time I was four to 18, okay? And I ain't from here, okay? And so, and I was told that every day of growing up. Like, even the fact that I said ain't, I feel like I should be rebuked because mom and dad, who have no problem against West Virginia, they're here, they're like, don't talk like that. We're New Englanders. We don't say ain't. This is a New England home in a West Virginia sphere. Like, oh, Okay, so I don't belong there, but I don't belong here. And then I spent a summer, two weeks in Utah on a missions trip between my senior year of high school and my freshman year of college. When we left, we all lived in West Virginia. When I left, by the time I came back, my mom had already moved to Florida to take up a teaching job for that school year, two weeks' time. And dad was packing up to be able to go down. And so then I moved to Wisconsin for college, the same time my parents moved to Florida. Am I from Florida? No, I've never been from Florida, but I'm not from Wisconsin either, but I lived in Wisconsin. I I don't live in West Virginia anymore, so I had to get a Wisconsin driver's license with the address of the college that we went to because I didn't have an address in Florida, but I needed a driver's license. Then we left there, went to Detroit. Also, I'm not from Detroit, but we lived there for six years just so that we could move back. It's like, Peter, where are you from? I don't know. And everywhere you go, it's like, well, you don't talk like you're from here. Where's your accent? No clue. So, like, I know what Abraham's talking about. It's kind of like, well, wherever I am, I just know that that's not the place where I belong. Like, I claim here, but y'all don't claim me. I just wish that you would. Okay? Like, I have spent most of my life in Putnam County, West Virginia. Can I please claim it? But nobody cares. Putnam County doesn't work. It's like the one county you can't say that you're from. But there's that restlessness. It's like, well, where are you from? It's just like, well, my people were here, there, and the other place. I don't know. She knows where she's from. She's from Michigan. That's what Abraham feels. But for the course of his entire life, like he had roots in Haran for 75 years. And then God says, leave and wander. And so even by the time he shows up to buy the cemetery plot, he says, I know I don't belong. All I do is I just sojourn. I just travel. That's what God's called me to do. I know I'm a foreigner here, but please sell me this place. And there was the promise and the realization that's all Isaac ever did. And it's all Jacob ever did. They just described themselves as sojourners, just wanderers. But here, it wasn't just that he didn't belong in Canaan. Abraham saw he didn't even belong on earth. Do you belong here? Or are you just wandering? Are you a foreigner or is this your place? Abraham admitted, he confessed, I don't belong here on earth. And he, res- he refused to settle for less 
than the better heavenly country that God had promised and prepared for him. At his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised home. It wasn't Canaan. He knew that after his eyes closed here for the last time, they would open upon the heavenly country that he had been longing for. That being the case, how could he look back at Ur and call that home? How could he be jealous of the Canaanites with their cities? He was a citizen of heaven, and he longed to go home. Before his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised son. At his death, Abraham's eyes were fixed on his promised home. After Abraham's death, what happens? Back in Genesis 25, hopefully that's not a hard turn for you. My Bible just kind of wants to open up to Genesis at these points. That's a good sign. Verses 11 and 12, Genesis 25, 11 and 12. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled at Beer Lahai Roy. These are the generations, it begins another section. These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. What happened after Abraham's death? After Abraham's death, God's plan continued. That's really a significant point. Abraham. Genesis spends no time, more time on anyone so far as it has on Abraham. We followed the man for a hundred years, right? Through successes and failures, faith and faithlessness, up to that sacrifice on that mountain, through the death of his wife, through the marriage of his son, through his own death. It's like Abraham, that's a big deal. What happens when an Abraham dies? Well, God's plan continues. That's what happens when Abraham dies. And as promised, God was with Isaac after Abraham died. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son. God had blessed Abraham, and now God blesses Isaac. And God would continue to be with Isaac and continue to bless him. And we've seen that already in the provision of Rebekah as his wife. We'll see it more in the next few weeks. Once again, God was faithful to his promise. He always has been, and he always will be. So since God swore to bless Abraham, and he did, but he has sworn to himself, I will bless Isaac, and he is. God is faithful. And even though God had done amazing things through Abraham, for Abraham, Abraham was just one small part of God's plan. So even in Abraham's death, God's plan just continues to move forward. His blessing transfers to Isaac as promised, and the plan of redemption continues to unfold. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the plan of God, his promise, and that that Genesis 3 promise of the blessing that would come that we see funneled to and through Abraham and then through Isaac. Nothing is going to stop it, not even the death of someone as significant as Abraham. It doesn't matter how slow the progress seems, 100 years and you have one child. The progress of this plan doesn't seem to move very quickly, but it is moving forward. Everything is happening perfectly according to God's timing. At the same time that God's plan is very slowly unfolding, world history is also unfolding and at a much faster pace. 
Technologies are being discovered. Battles are being fought. Nations are being formed, even among Abraham's other descendants. That's what I see in these chapters. So we read of the generations of Ishmael. Ishmael was sent away. We're not supposed to care about Ishmael, but it just sort of wraps it up. And in the time that Abraham's just had one son of promise, and then while Isaac waits to have twins, only one of whom will actually still be the recipient of God's promise, Ishmael's clan is flourishing. The history of the nations of the world continue to grow. Isaac struggles to have one pregnancy with his wife. Ishmael has 12 sons just like that. And they all find places and they all find spouses and they all have children to where they rise up to have their own villages, their own cities, their own fortresses, their own tribes. Like now we have 12 nations where there was one and then Isaac is just sitting here like, is Rebecca ever going to get pregnant? This is often the way that things work. History, the the workings of the world unfold and unfold quickly and unfold significantly while the plan of God just doesn't seem to be accomplishing much. The broad river of history rushes past while the slow stream of God's plan winds unnoticed nearby. Which is scripture more concerned with? The broad rushing river of history or the slow, small stream of God's plan? Which is it? What does scripture care about? The stream of God's plan. Always the stream. Always the stream. Oh yeah, Egypt. Eh. But God's people. (laughs) What? How could you just be like, oh yeah, and there was Egypt. What? And then like later on, the prophets are like, oh yeah, you know, Babylon. Eh, eh. <laughs> Medes and Persians. Eh, eh. Oh yeah, and there are these Greek things. Something's going to happen to the Greeks, whatever. Oh yeah, and the Romans are here, but Jesus, right? It's always just the small workings of God's plan that scripture focused on. Well, what are we focused on? Scripture is always focused on the work of God, even in the smallest ways, even with the fewest people. Even after Abraham's death, God's plan just continues to unfold, just moves on. As he moved toward his death, Abraham's eyes remained fixed on God's promises, promised son, promised home, and really even in the continuation of God's plan. You're going to die. I don't know when. We have the likelihood. I just try to think, like, in 10 years, in the next 10 years, how many funerals? we have? Who will no longer be sitting here? There are some of the people that we might expect and fills my heart with sadness, but what about the unexpected ones? See, kids, like, I don't want it to apply to you, but it might. Over the next 10 years, whatever your age is, you might die. We might grieve your funeral here. So we can't just be like the world. It's like, we'll just deal with that later. Just kind of Kick that can down the road. Kick the bucket of the, you know, kick the can of kicking the bucket down the road. That won't happen to me. There's always more time. Maybe there's not more time. So Abraham had planned. He knew his life would be long, but it would come to an end, and his eyes were fixed on God's promises. What about you? Are you preparing to die? 
not just have you picked a grave plot, not just have you worked out your will, right? Not have you gotten in your bucket list, but are you preparing to die? How should you prepare to die? Well, as Abraham prepared to die, he first had his eyes fixed on the promised son. That's what you should do. As you think about the inevitable reality of your death in a day or a decade or a century, you need to have your eyes fixed on God's promised son. There's kind of two ways to look at that. There's a, with Abraham, like we're not looking back at Isaac. So when I say God's promised son, who am I talking about? Kai, who am I talking about? God's promised son is Jesus. Exactly. That's who your eyes need to be fixed on. So how do we fix our eyes on Jesus preparing for our inevitable death? Well, first is the knowledge of Jesus in the gospel. As you think about your coming death and preparing for that with your eyes fixed on God's promised son, you need to know that he isn't just God's son, but that that promise is yours. What promise? Promise of forgiveness and righteousness and life. So that's the first step in preparation for death is, is having a certainty of the knowledge of the forgiveness of your sins, which is only found through God's promised son. So are you confident that you've been forgiven? If you won't admit your sin, then you have nothing to be forgiven of. And I would say you're, you're delusional. Stop ignoring your shame and your guilt. It is real. It is before God, and you do need to do something about it. And it's not, well, I'm not as bad as. Well, no, you're worse than you want to admit. Just like Psalm 139, God already knows your thoughts. He already knows your words, right? Is his presence surrounding you and his omniscience knowing everything about you? Is that a source of comfort because you know through Christ that God is for you? Or is it naked and open before the eyes to whom we must answer for those thoughts and those words? If you're preparing for death, eyes fixed on God's promised son, you can know because Jesus died on the cross to be forgiven for sinners like you and like me. And that forgiveness is available. And there's no need to think about anything else regarding death if your eyes aren't fixed on Jesus as your savior and the only hope that you have as you approach that death. Despairing of good works and personal righteousness and clinging to Christ alone, you can be forgiven, you can have life, and that home that Abraham was looking forward to is your home as well. So as you prepare for death, whatever your age is, because you don't know how long that breath will last, how, how many hand breaths is it, you don't know. But you can be forgiven of your sins through having your eyes fixed on Jesus as God's promised son. That's not it though. Like eyes fixed on God's promised son also means living a life of exclusive worship of Jesus. It's not just a thing that you're like, yep, I got that taken care of and now I'll, now I'll go make sure I have my grave plot. Now I'll just make sure I have my will. Like as long as I've got that insurance, then I can just kind of do whatever I want. I'm prepared for death because that thing that I did, that's not life. 
That's not spiritual life. It's, it's knowing Jesus and loving Jesus. Eyes continued to fixed, be fixed on God's promised son, the one who lived and died and rose and is coming again. And throughout the New Testament, there's that, that looking, set your affections on things above. Why? Because Christ is there. So every day, it's just kind of like, well, right? Ecclesiastes says, just like, the same thing that I said, you're going to die. And what's the answer? Cling to Christ and worship him daily. Not just like live in sin and enjoy some of that and then eventually you'll get around to Jesus, but worship him and live for him to know him now. That is the essence of eternal life. Is your affection set on Jesus? And all week, just kind of like, I want that. And there's just the life that robs it, just sucks it out. Does that happen to you? I want my eyes fixed on Jesus. I'm writing about having my eyes fixed on Jesus. And what's my eyes fixed on? Just like everything else other than Jesus. Like, man, I want to tell you how to prepare to die. I'm like, like yeah, but we got to get to dance. <laughs> yeah, but I got to pay these bills. There's that struggle though. God help us. To have our eyes fixed on Jesus. Eternity is knowing Jesus. Life should be knowing Jesus. So I'm glad that you're here. Because we try every week to just center our worship around the fact of of calling our affections back to focus on Jesus. There's just nothing more worth focusing on. We talked about it, right? The glory of Jesus, as we talked even about evangelism in our training hour classes. Jesus is everything. You prepare for death. It's not just knowing him as your savior and then moving past it, but loving Jesus. As you prepare for death, love Jesus. Prepare for eternity with Jesus. Worship Jesus. Know Jesus. Have your eyes fixed on God's promised son. As Abraham did that, so that kind of, we take like one thing for Abraham Uh, Because it was all kind of combined. Like God's promise with that son was all together. So the the different things that he did all sort of centered. But for us, it kind of divides into two things. Where one, there's the love and the worship of Abraham didn't worship Isaac. Abraham worshiped God by focusing on Isaac. So he was being obedient to God in those type of things. But he was also acting to prepare Isaac to be the recipient of blessing. And that's where there's almost two paths for us. Like focusing on the glory of God's promise in his son. But also, what about, as we prepare to die, preparing our children to be recipients of God's blessing through Christ. So we focus on Christ and... We prepare as much as we can. We prepare our children to be recipients of the blessing of Christ. You see what I'm saying? You see how that's like, that's what Abraham did. He sent those other ones away to make an easier path for Isaac to be the recipient of God's blessing. So parents and grandparents, it's like, as you prepare to die, is it a, a, a passion of yours? Is it an emphasis in your life, whatever age you are, that it's just like, I am obsessed with the thought that the blessing of God that I have through Christ will also be my children's. I'm not content with it just being mine. 
I want to try to get rid of whatever would keep them from it and bring in whatever would bring them to it. And even though I can't make it happen, I want to make as easy a path as possible that they would see that the blessing of God is in Jesus and he must be theirs. He must be yours. Yesterday, I had the, the, the privilege of going down to Chris Wilson's church, Salt Peter. They had a, a conference for pastors and preachers and uh, emphasis on the Great Commission. And Chris asked me to, to speak on uh, fulfilling the Great Commission around your dinner table. And it wasn't just hospitality, it was parenting. So I said, you know, we, we can get really attracted, really excited about going and making disciples of all nations, small towns in Appalachia, forgotten places in Uganda, uh, underreached places in Belize, unreached people groups across the world. And that's exciting. That'll fill up conferences and make for missions, and it's great. And I said, what about in the midst of that, I said, stay there for and make disciples of your children. It's far less exciting but far more important, equally important, more is hard, while, not don't, not don't go to the nations, but while you go to the nations, don't forget your children. So as you prepare to die, are you passionate about making disciples of your children? And I said, well, how do we do that? Well, we, we, we share or speak God's truth with them. Do you share God's gospel truth about Jesus? Do you take the time to share that with your children, with your grandchildren? Is that, is that a, a passion of your existence as you look forward to the fact that you're going to die? Making sure that they know who Jesus is. I probably won't get the quote right, but it's like a truth that is uh, assumed or taken for granted in one generation is forgotten or abandoned by the next generation. Are we passionate in our love for Christ to see our children be made disciples of? That they too would know that God has a promised son and that there is a promised home. I said we need to share that truth with them and then maybe even more important to do that properly, we have to spend the time and prioritize discipleship of our children. And we're a family, so that includes all of you. Right, but we have that responsibility. And then we share, we, we share that truth and we spend that time, but we trust God. Those were the three, I said, truth and time and trust. Because you can do all the right stuff and you can prioritize it. You can love Jesus. And then I, I just said, do we see the pattern throughout the Old Testament of how many men lo- knew and loved the Lord with children who did not? Adam, assuming that he loved the Lord who had spoken grace and mercy to him in the garden. Noah, Abraham, Ishmael never has anything spoken about his relationship with the Lord. Isaac, who knew and loved the Lord, had Esau. Jacob had terrible children. (laughs) Other than Joseph, they were all bad. Like God still was with them, but they were all terrible. Uh, And then you have um, Aaron with Nadab and Abihu. And then you have Gideon with a whole bunch of kids. And one of them murdered all the other ones. Like he had deep faith in God. And then his Abimelech murdered his brothers, dozens of them. That's not out of love for the Lord. 
And then it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, maybe the next one will learn. So, oh, yeah, Eli learned. Oh, no, he didn't. Hophni and Phinehas. Well, Samuel will learn from Eli. No, have you read about Samuel's sons? I think it's 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people are like, well, who's going to rule after you? Because your sons are godless bribe receivers. We don't want them as judges over us. And David had excellent sons in his love for the Lord, except for Amnon, who raped his sister, Absalom, who murdered Amnon, and Adonijah, who rejected God's choice of Solomon as king. Well, Solomon was wise with his sons, except for Rehoboam. Do we need to continue? We need to be concerned with the sharing of all aspects of the gospel truth with the next generation. That's part of having our eyes fixed on God's promise and seeking to pass it on to our children. Are our eyes fixed on God's promised son? Are you preparing to die? And then we too, like Abraham, can also have our eyes fixed on God's promised home. Do you belong here? Is this your place? Or are you sojourning? What is this place? We, ha- we already read about it in Hebrews 10. Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He desired a better country. I love West Virginia. Is West Virginia good enough for you? Is earth earth enough? Is that all you want? Or do you desire a better country, a heavenly country, prepared for us by God? That's not all Hebrews has to say. You can write down Hebrews 12, verse 22. It says this, You, believers, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. It's like, oh, I don't live in Israel. The heavenly Jerusalem. And who's there? The innumerable angels in festal gathering. Who else is there? To the assembly, the gathering, the church of the firstborn ones who are enrolled in heaven. Who else is there? To God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You're on just a a wandering desert plain, but there's a mountain in the distance. It's Mount Zion, and there's a city built by God and prepared for you, and there's a feast going on with angels and the spirits of the righteous made perfect with no sin, and Jesus is there, and you're welcomed if you've been cleansed by his blood, which is better than just, I didn't do anything wrong. It's no, you've been cleansed from your sin. Do you want to live on the plain or do you want to live on the mountain where God is? And then it says more, let us be grateful, Hebrews 12, 28, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. I hope my house is built on a good foundation, right? I hope it's, it's good enough for us to be able to live in for, for decades and then for our kids to sell and get a good return on investment. I hope that that's the case, right? Nobody wants to live in a house that's going to just stumble and fall, but eventually it will, right? I hope I make wise plans for retirement so I can provide for Leanne, I can provide for my kids, I can give that inheritance to my children's children. That's what a righteous man plans on doing, but someday it's all going to fall apart. Then what? I want, I want a kingdom that can't be shaken, I don't want to build on sand. I want to build on a rock, and the rock is Christ. He's the builder of that city. Is that what you want? Are your eyes fixed on that? If inflation crushes your investments, 
your home falls apart, your retirement plans don't work, your, your business ventures fail? Or is everything shaken or is there a kingdom that God has prepared for you? We can't talk about this home that we have prepared without looking at the words of Jesus, can we? Or Jesus spoke comfort to his troubled disciples in John chapter 14. In my Father's house are many rooms, a room with your name on it because you've trusted in the blood of Jesus. And so I've gone to not just prepare this place, but prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and not take you there. I will take you to, what does it say? I'll take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And then Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, the hearing of his disciples, for our benefit, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and they would know Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then later, verse 24, he says this, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Like that mountain with that city, That kingdom that can't be shaken is filled with the glory of Jesus. And he's like, I just can't wait to show it to you. I want you to see my glory, he says. I don't want you to see me in weakness and sermon. I want you to to just share in the glory forever of these type of things. That's where the home and the sun come together because the whole point of the home is that it's the home of the sun. So do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal or print so much money that it's not worth it anymore. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Neither moth nor rust can destroy that. Thieves, they don't break in and steal. They're not allowed past the gates. Where your treasure is, your heart will be also. As you prepare to die, where is your treasure? I read this this week. It's good enough. I texted it to Keith. I texted it to Leanne. Uh, An old Puritan wrote it that somebody else, this is a paraphrase. An unbeliever would choose heaven over hell. Makes sense. They know, they know what it is, right? Nobody would be like, have a, a true biblical knowledge of hell and really say like, yeah, I want to go there. Nobody would say that. It's insanity. It's lunacy. It's ridiculousness. The peak of folly to think that that is a true place of suffering with the wrath of God. And they're like, yeah, I want to go there. Nobody would choose hell over heaven. An unbeliever would choose heaven over hell, but the believer chooses heaven over earth. I thought that was good. Where are you? Is it just heaven over hell? That's kind of easy. It doesn't really require a lot of faith. It doesn't require a heart change or different affections. But have you chosen heaven over earth? Are you a stranger and a foreigner like Abraham was? Are you a citizen here or is your citizenship in heaven where we wait 
for Jesus, King Jesus, to come back for us? What, what is your choice? And we also then have, we have our eyes fixed on God's promised son and, and our promised home. And we also, as we prepare to die, we can have confidence in God's continuing plan. Until the coming of our Lord, history will continue. Nations, even empires, will continue to rise and fall. But which are you more concerned about? That rushing river of history and having your part in it or the slow, small stream of redemption? What, what are you most concerned about? You know, just like our ancestors in the faith in Scripture filling Hebrews 11, they all died. And our heroes in the faith post-Scripture Across church history, they have all died. And just like many of our own known and loved ones have died, even in just in the last few years, some in the last few months, we too will die. It'll happen to us. Yet just as God's plan continued to move forward without the patriarchs Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, and as the plan continued after the deaths of King David, Solomon, or Hezekiah, after the deaths of the prophets Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Malachi, so the church of Jesus Christ has continued to grow even without the apostles Paul, Peter, or John, and without the early church fathers like Polycarp or Chrysostom or Augustine, after the deaths of Luther, Calvin, Edwards, or Spurgeon, whoever your favorite preacher or author may be, the kingdom of God will advance without hesitating after they die and after I die and after you die, because that's the glory of Christ's eternal kingdom. He uses his servants, but his work is is not dependent on his servants. And you can be sure about that, that after your death, just like after the death of everybody who's come before us, God's plan will continue. Marching forward until it's sure and certain completion. You can bet on it. Here's how I want to bring all this together. I skipped some other names because who wants to hear names, right? You're probably like, why is he reading all these? We could read about Ishmael's people too. Nebaioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, and Adbeel, Mibzam, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Timah, Jatur, Nafish, and Kedema, the 12 sons of Ishmael. There you go. We're not afraid of reading any text here at Risen King. Here's how I want to bring all of this to a conclusion. You know, we may not know much or care much about Keturah's sons or about Ishmael's genealogy, but God does. We may forget their names, but God didn't forget their names. In Isaiah chapter 60, I meant to have this on the screen. I don't. In Isaiah 60, which is kind of like the Old Testament Revelation 21 about the nations coming into this new city that God prepares, God promises that the light of his glory will rise upon the earth and all peoples, and his glory will be seen upon them. And then listen to what it says. Isaiah 60, nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. Your daughters shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. This is good eschatological promises, right? Who is it for? Are you in Genesis 25? Scan these names. A multitude of camels shall cover you. Might sound weird to our ears, didn't sound weird to theirs. 
The young camels of, look at verse 2, Genesis 25. The young camels of Midian. Look at verse 4. And Ephah. Look back at verse 3. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Look over at verse 13. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall come up with acceptance on my altar, and I will beautify my beautiful house. Why read that? Because the only time those names appear are Genesis 25, most of them, and Isaiah chapter 60. Because the sons of Abraham who were sent away through the grace of God and the promised son have a place in the eternal home. Why would Abraham send those away? Like what? How can God be gracious and merciful? Because he was preparing a home for them to come back around to. And it's the promise. Every tribe and tongue and people and nation, even the Keturites or the Ishmaelites have a place in God's home as worshipers of Jesus. The blessing of Abraham will one day come to all of his descendants to the praise of the glory of God's grace in Jesus Christ, God's promised son. And his good news follows.